This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat in Southwind District with your Extension Crop Report. Soybeans can get a lot of different diseases. Many of them look similar and many of them start beneath the ground on the roots where it is hard to see what is going on. We are getting into the season where soybean diseases become more apparent as certain parts of the field aren't canoping like everything else. However, some diseases start right at germination and some don't take off until pot filling. In this report, we are going to cover a few of the more common diseases that can infect soybeans. Going in order of timing of when the soybeans are infected, we could start off with the seedling diseases Epithium and Ritochondria. These diseases survive in commonly flooded soils that kill the seedling before it has very many leaves. It operates by zoospores, which are spores that could swim, seek out, and infect young seedlings. The best way to defend against these diseases is a seed treatment. Fasarium root rot is similar to Pythium in that it can kill very young plants and is a fungus that lives in the soil from year to year. However, Fasarium is a very common disease that can infect soybeans, either as seedlings or as bigger plants later on, and also doesn't fully kill the plant. Fasarium like cool wet soils in the early season, but hot dry conditions later on can show the symptoms with scorched upper leaves and yellowing lower leaves. Seed treatment can help prevent Fusarium infection during germination and in early growth. Photophoria is a fungal disease that can affect soybeans at any stage from seedling to pot filling. This disease can be seen in the lower stem of the soybean as it turns dark brown. Eventually, this chokes off the upper plant causing stunting and dying leaves. This fungus also likes wet soil, but is better managed with resistant varietal selection, though seed treatment can have some limited help. Charcoal rot is different from all the others, and that is worse in the dry years rather than the wet ones. Also, corn is a host of the disease, so soybean crop rotation won't help reduce its prevalence. Charcoal rot infection starts early in the growing season. Charcoal rot infection starts early in the growing season, but isn't seen until flowering. Charcoal rot causes the lower stem to turn a light gray like charcoal and covers it in tiny black spots that are the fungal bodies releasing spores. I haven't seen much of this disease yet, but it, it is likely, considering we've had the right conditions for it. Frog eye leaf spot and Satora brown spot are full of diseases. Frog eye leaf spot can cause serious yield loss when conditions are right, with lots of small, circular spots with brown edges. Frog eye can get onto the soybean pods as well. Satora is very common, but doesn't always cause a yield loss. This disease causes irregular brown lesions that start in the lower canopy and work upward during the growing season. Yield loss depends on how favorable the conditions are and how far up the canopy the fungus gets during grain fill. Most leaf diseases prefer cooler summer temperatures with plenty of humidity. If you have any questions about soybean diseases or need me to come out and take a look at the problem areas in your field, please give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Coover with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent from the Wildcat Extension District. Grain feeding can sometimes be a controversial topic among goat and sheep producers. Some producers feed a lot of grain through their livestock, while others don't feed any at all. The decision to feed grain should be based on the nutritional needs of the animals and the economics of including grain in the feeding program. Obviously, 
Forage, like pasture, range, browse, and hay, is the most natural diet for goats, sheep, and other ruminant animals, and it's usually the most economical source of nutrients. Ruminants are less likely to experience digestive upsets, such as acidosis or enterotoxemia, if they're consuming high forage diets. The purpose of feeding grain, commercial feeds, or other supplements to livestock is to provide nutrients that the forage part of the diet is not providing. For example, forage diets often cannot meet the nutritional needs of high-producing animals, like lactating females, for example, or those nursing triplets, or even lambs and kids with the genetic potential for rapid growth. For this reason, supplements are often provided to enable livestock to reach their genetic potential for milk production and growth. Supplements are usually fed to increase milk production and rate of gain. If the increased production increases profitability, supplementation makes a lot of sense. Conversely, if the increased costs of supplementation are not offset by increased profits, supplementation is not advisable. Supplementation of meat goats may not prove to be as economical as supplementing other ruminant livestock. Supplementation, especially with protein, has been shown to increase the immune response to parasites like worms. In some situations, grain and other supplements are a more economical source of nutrients than forage. For example, corn selling for four bucks per bushel is a more economical source of energy than hay selling for $100 a ton. Energy is usually the most limiting nutrient in sheep and goat diet. Excess energy is stored as fat. Protein is usually the most expensive nutrient in sheep and goat diets. There's a tendency to overfeed protein to livestock. An excess protein impairs performance as energy is required for its removal. High land values sometimes make pasture a more expensive source of nutrients than harvested or purchased feedstuffs. There can also be considerable costs associated with maintaining good quality pasture, lime, fertilizer, seed, planting, etc. To know the true value of your forage, it must be tested. Judging by appearance or book values can often be skewed. For more information on testing forage or supplementing your small ruminants, give me a call at the Wildcat Extension District. 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, natural resource and diversified ag agent with her report. This is David Scrantz, one of the agriculture and natural resource agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. Providing birds a food source is an easy way to provide for wildlife viewing opportunities. Three items to consider when starting a bird feeding program are feeder types, feeder location, and seed selection. Feeder types include ground or tray feeders, hopper feeders, tub feeders, and suet or basket feeders. Ground or tray feeders are designed to be set directly on the ground or close to ground level. Low cut tree stems are good locations for tray feeders. Trays with a lip around the edge help prevent seed from being scratched onto the ground. 
Use trays that have drain holes to reduce water buildup and reduce chances of mold. Hopper feeders or self-feeders are larger feeders that automatically disseminate seed onto a tray or platform as it is removed by the birds. Hopper feeders keep the seed dry and need to be refilled less often than other feeders. Tub feeders are lengths of glass or plastic tubing with openings and perches allowing the birds to land and feed. Suet or basket feeders range from simple onion bags to more elaborate wire cages and are designed to hold suet. Locating feeders requires one to consider not only the best viewing areas, but also protection for the feeding birds, ease in refilling and cleaning the feeder, and the variety of desired bird species. Predators will be attracted to feeding sites. Make sure there is escape cover in the form of trees, shrubs, or brush piles within 15 feet of the feeding location. This allows feeding birds a location to fly and hide when predators show up. In order to attract the widest variety of birds, it is important to locate feeders at different heights. Many birds feed from the ground while others are adept at feeding on raised trays or even on the hanging tub or suet feeders. Establishing a variety of feeders and feeding heights provides the best opportunity for viewing many different species of birds. Seed selection is also very important component of bird feeding. Black oil sunflower seed and white millet seed are considered two of the better seeds to use when feeding birds. The black oil sunflower seeds can be used in tub feeders and mixed with the millet in ground and hopper type feeders. This combination of seeds is less apt to attract starlings and grackles than commercial mixes containing other types of seed. The final thing to keep in mind when considering feeding the birds is your commitment. During the winter months, birds come to depend on you as a steady source of from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been a Dave Strauss with your K-State Research and Extension Report. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Many people are calling the Extension office distressed about the sudden decline of large trees in their yards. Often, these trees will die back in parts of the canopy while looking totally healthy in others. In most trees, this is not a serious problem that will indicate long-term health problems in the tree. However, in American elm trees, this dieback can represent a disease that is lethal to susceptible elms all across the United States, Dutch elm disease. Dutch elm disease is a fungal wilt that is spread through root grafts or through vectoring by the elm bark beetle, and the manner in which it spreads to certain trees will determine the initial symptoms you are likely to see. If spread through root grafts where the roots of nearby trees fuse together, you will see the lowest branches begin to flag or die back and drop their leaves. If spread by the elm bark beetle, you will see random branches throughout the canopy begin to die back where the beetles feed. In either case, there will be brown streaking in the wood of infected branches, and the fungus will spread throughout the tree, eventually causing wilt symptoms throughout the entire canopy. Once the tree has been infected, you must control the disease through tree removal or attempt to kill the disease through fungicide injections. The mobility of this disease to neighboring areas means this is one plant disease you cannot just live with. 
Despite its name, the disease originally was introduced to America in the 1920s from Eastern Europe and Asia, and since that time has been estimated to kill over 40 million native elms. The most susceptible elm species to Dutch elm disease is the American elm, which will be what most homeowners and cities have in landscapes and on streets in our area. Recently, plant breeders have developed hybrids and cultivars that have shown resistance to Dutch elm disease. One such cultivar is Princeton. While I am hesitant to recommend new elm plantings in regions where Dutch elm disease is present, these disease-resistant hybrids and cultivars make it more likely that new plantings will not be severely affected by DED like previous plantings would be, and make elm trees more viable in the landscape. Research into a tree's common diseases and their occurrence in our area will give you an idea of what cultivars and disease resistances to keep an eye out for when purchasing new plants. Dutch elm disease has several prevention strategies, but once the tree has been infected, it is almost impossible to prevent the fungus from moving throughout the rest of the tree. The best method to prevent the spread of Dutch elm disease is sanitation of fallen twigs and branches, and consistent pruning of dead or weak limbs where the elm bark beetle would be likely to feed. If you suspect that your elm might have Dutch elm disease, always sanitize your pruning equipment if moving from tree to tree, so that you do not spread it to previously uninfected trees. In elm trees, there are two other diseases that are often mistaken for DED, elm yellows and bacterial leaf scorch. For help diagnosing elm problems, schedule a visit with your extension agent to figure out what is ailing your trees and what you can do to keep them healthy. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.